I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. I have never set foot in New England, not once in my life, unless, of course, you want to count the region of the redwood forests in Northern California or places along the coast there like Eureka or Crescent City. Hold on there, you say. Your geography is way off. But no, I think I might just be right about this because long before Lewis and Clark made their way to the Pacific Ocean, in fact, almost 230 years before that, an English sailing ship arrived near Coos Bay, Oregon, then sailed south to the area near Eureka, and the captain named the place Nova Albion, which loosely saying means New England. The name didn't stick around, but then neither did the English sailors at that time. But still, I am a little bit right here. Northern California is a New England, and uh, for that you have to either thank or curse Sir Francis Drake. The consequential life of Sir Francis Drake goes far beyond this little bit of trivia, at least so would say our next guest here on Constant Wonder. We have with us now Lawrence Burgreen, best-selling author of Over the Edge of the World, Magellan's Terrifying Circumnavigation of the Globe, which was a New York Times notable book of the year. Other books to his credit include Columbus, The Four Voyages, 1492 to 1504, Marco Polo, From Venice to Xanadu, and Voyage to Mars. He's here, though, today to talk about his most recent book. It's titled In Search of a Kingdom, Francis Drake, Elizabeth I, and the Perilous Birth of the British Empire. Lawrence Burgreen, welcome to our show. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here with you, Marcus. Well, I don't think I would ever have been very pleased to live anywhere really close to Sir Francis Drake or his queen, Elizabeth I. I'm, I'm wondering about you. If you had, would you have welcomed them as neighbors? <laughs> well, it's compared to what? I think they probably were pretty companionable <laughs> compared to other people of that era. One of the things that struck me was researching and writing this book was how really tough and brutal uh, life was in Elizabethan England and uh, uh, Europe at that time. And it was, um, as a philosopher once said, nasty, brutish, and short. Uh, people were really um, very violent. Um, uh, Queen Elizabeth was very capricious. Uh, Drake was, as sea captains go of that era, uh, pretty mild-mannered and uh, comparatively restrained in his behavior. Um, but it was just a tough time. You know, disease was prevalent. And uh, there was danger all around. Yeah. Now, have people been saying that this is a book about Sir Francis Drake? Because you got Elizabeth in the title there, too. It's, it's not really... Right. Uh, you know, it started out, I had wrote this book about Magellan uh, over the edge of the world. It came out a while back. And, of course, Magellan was the, well, he emerged as the leader of that voyage. He didn't really complete it. Um, and uh, a few sailors returned empty-handed. Uh, well, no, they brought back some spices to Seville. Um, but the voyage was considered uh, unrepeatable because the loss of ships and of life was uh, extraordinary. And, you know, Magellan himself was killed in the Philippines in and a rather unnecessary uh, local war that he stumbled into. And uh, so Drake came along about 60 years later. He had the benefit of Drake's mistakes to learn from. Or Magellan's uh, sorry, mistakes. Uh, Magellan's yeah. mistakes. He had an account of... Uh, the voyage that uh, Magellan's chronicler had kept with him. And he actually was very careful to avoid problems wherever he could that uh, um, Magellan had stumbled into. So, but uh, things were even worse in Magellan's era. He, he, he was really, you know, he was horrifying. Um, he was extremely stern, rather, you know, almost inhuman, uh, uh, cold-blooded, um, and... Uh, you know, the punishments he executed sailors who didn't obey him uh, without blinking an eye. And, uh, you know, Drake was somewhat less brutal than uh, Magellan, although he also executed a sailor who he thought was a witch. Um, so he was capable of uh, all sorts of behavior as well. And uh, life in, in Elizabeth's court at the same time uh, was very dangerous. Drake was a a pirate, but what that really meant was he was stealing gold and bringing it back to England, and among his secret backers uh, were uh, was Queen Elizabeth, who needed the money desperately to keep her kingdom going. England 
at that time was uh, one of the poorer nations in Europe. We think of it as being a robust era of Henry VIII and and uh, the Renaissance, but in fact, England was a very poor country on the verge of uh, starving. People were living on acorns. Um, the dominant force at that time in Europe was Spain, which had a huge empire um, in a union with the Catholic Church, and they basically uh, controlled everything, including trade. And it looked like at any point they were going to invade England. England, of course, was fresh off the Reformation, which Henry VIII had started. So uh, they were divided between Protestants and Catholics, although their idea of a Protestant probably wouldn't be ours, because if you were to attend a Elizabethan Protestant service, it would look Catholic to us for all intents and purposes. Nevertheless, there was this uh, division, and uh, the country was... Um, not unified, and if King Philip of Spain had decided to invade, um, it would have been very short work. Um, he would have made straight for Elizabeth. He would have captured her, and you know it's not really clear if he would have executed her or taken her uh, uh, as his wife. He fancied her, and he had seen pictures. Wait, of wait, her, wait, wait! Uh, you got to slow down there. What were the <laughs> options? What were those options? <laughs> well. <laughs> The options were to execute her as a political rival or uh, to take her as he'd been married several times. There's got to be a middle her. ground. Is there not somewhere in the middle there? <laughs> well, <laughs> that's a good question. Anyway, the point is he fancied her. And, of course, she wasn't married. And she resisted getting married because she wanted to preserve her power and autonomy. And she wasn't the only one. The Pope had expressed uh, great fondness for her which was uh, not really religious in nature. Let's put it that way. Yeah, are popes um, supposed to do that in her day? Well, that was, that was, that was the, the pope in her day was, was like that. Anyway, she managed to fend off all these um, threats and advances and to maintain her independence. Um, Philip uh, almost, well, invaded England. We'll get to that later with the Battle of the Spanish Armada, but uh, for now, it seemed like England was hardly even worth invading. Well, where did Drake come in? He, as a pirate, was had one great, um, we would call it now, a, uh, a superpower, and that was stealing gold. And he stole gold from Spain. Uh, Spain was had uh, an elaborate network of uh, uh, transporting gold from across South America and Central America back to Spain. Um, the country became very rich as a result. They expended most of that money on foreign wars, by the way. I, I have uh, to ask but, you at this point, does, yes, a, does yes, a person yes. just wake up one day with a superpower and it happens to be stealing gold? <laughs> no, no, I'll tell you how it got there. No, he was the oldest of 12 children of a farmer in Devon, which is a rural area in southern England, also very poor. Um, he had no particular prospects. Uh, like many people from that area, he went to sea, uh, which was a very dangerous occupation for work. Um, eventually, he became uh, uh, joined the Merchant Marine, so he was ferrying goods uh, back and forth around England. Um, but he was more ambitious, and as it turned out, he had a cousin named James Hawkins, who, this is rather a dubious distinction, uh, was pioneering the English slave trade. England never really got too far with the slave trade, but at that time, uh, Hawkins was uh, trying to make something of it to rival uh, Portugal especially. Now, the English slave trade was basically, what they were doing was stealing. Portugal actually captured slaves in Africa, um, and Hawkins was stealing these slaves away from the Portuguese, these captured slaves, and reselling them or doing something else with them. It was brutal. It was inhuman. You know, it was, it was really terrible. And there was actually even a great revulsion against it in England at that time. Uh, uh, Drake didn't really think these things through. He was a young man. He was looking to make his fortune. So he went off with his uh, cousin, his uncle, rather, Hawkins, on, on one of these... Uh, slaving voyages went to Central America and was almost killed in a battle, a brutal battle uh, with Spain. So as two things came out of that, one was a real hatred of the Spanish, who we thought were incredibly inhuman. This was the era of the Spanish Inquisition, of course, and a dislike of slavery. 
Um, it wasn't what we would see so much on, you know, humanitarian grounds. Uh, that uh, it was that kind of um, outrage. Uh, it was more that he just thought it was impractical and, and, and a foolish thing to do. And he thought it was much easier, if you wanted wealth, to go after gold. Now, fortunately, Spain was mining gold all over Central uh, and South America. So he simply stole it from them. He stole it on the East Coast. He stole it on the West Coast. And he would bring it back to England. Which coasts? Eventually. You say East and West. You're talking about both sides of the Atlantic? Both sides, yes. Um, now, he... Uh, came to the attention of Queen Elizabeth, who desperately needed this gold because, you know, this was a very important source of wealth. And uh, she kept it secret. So with her secret backing and others around her in her court, um, he went off on his first great voyage, which turned out to be a circumnavigation. That was in 1577. Um, he didn't really even tell anybody where he was going, but he was retracing Magellan's route. And he had a copy of Magellan's map. Um, he hoped to do him one better, so he sailed across the Atlantic and then south along the coast of South America, along the coast of Brazil, um, wherever he encountered indigenous peoples. Um, he, he stole gold from them. Uh, many of them thought he was Spanish because those were the only foreigners or Europeans whom they had encountered. Um, for Drake, that was very bad news because um, Spain, you know, anytime they saw anybody they thought might be Spanish, they realized they were in for trouble, and they attacked them. And uh, so uh, Drake was constantly beset with that problem until he got to areas where Spain hadn't actually reached, and his relationship with indigenous peoples changed dramatically. Well, let's not go anyway, there just was... not just yet, because I don't want to get around. Um, sure, sure. I don't want to get around the Cape into the Pacific yet. Okay. I just want to figure out. It sounds like he had been around the Atlantic a whole lot before he ever uh, headed out on this long journey. He, he was, yeah, he was quite experienced. And, you know, we don't really know the details of all his early voyages. We do know the details of his circumnavigation and the later voyages when he was more famous. Uh, but the earlier ones, we don't know. It's rather spotty. So we don't really know, you know, where he went. And, and I really don't cover much of that in my book. My book really talks about two linked uh, voyages of his. One was the circumnavigation, which led eight years later to the Battle of the Spanish Armada, which was kind of the final yeah. conflict between England and Spain. Well, did he have a reputation? Did he already have a re an earned, deserved reputation for getting gold before his circumnavigation of the globe? Yes, yes. And if you mention Drake, he was, oh, right, he was the you know, the gold thief or the gold pirate. Um, other pirates were going in search of slaves or spices uh, or gems, and Drake sometimes went for gems. Uh, but he had a thing about gold. Um, and when he found a Spanish encampment of gold, he became very skillful at sending men ashore to basically make off with it, to pick up the gold ingots and, or gold nuggets and walk away with it. He discovered that Spain was really rather lackadaisical about protecting it. Uh, the Spanish guards uh, were not particularly zealous, and they basically watched as uh, Drake's men stole it. I think uh, they probably were not stealing anything that was going to be noticed back in Spain because the amount of gold they had was so immense. But for Drake, it was a very big deal. So, and Lawrence Burgreen, I have to go back to my first question now, because okay. I, my first question was, would you want this guy as your neighbor? And your response was, <laughs> well, those were brutal times. Now yeah. you're telling me that not only were those brutal times, but this guy robs people of their gold. So I'm coming back to the question. Would you want him as your neighbor if you know that he <laughs> robs gold? Well, <laughs> um, you know, that's, well, it's a complicated answer because... The Spaniards whom he encountered were always struck by the fact that he treated them uh, with great dignity and politeness. <laughs> In fact, he didn't, kill, he didn't slaughter them. He, on his entire circumnavigation... And he didn't he marry them either, killed right? One Spaniard, he gave them gifts. He would rob the ship blind and then live, leave a souvenir behind. Okay. A little gift from Francis Drake as a memento of the whole exploit. <laughs> and he was so good at flattering the captains that they felt it was almost as if it was, almost as if it was a privilege uh, to be robbed from 
uh, by by Francis Drake. Yeah, it's uh, almost a Johnny Depp taken. character at this point, right? Yes. So <laughs> he was, uh, you know, and he acquired a reputation in Spain as being having superhuman powers in Spain, uh, which tended to be superstitious like England, uh, they believed that he had a telescope that could see around the world and across the oceans, um, and that he uh, had other supernatural abilities. Um, in England, he did not have as big a reputation, curiously enough, until many years later. But in Spain, he was widely feared as El Drake, the dragon, yeah. uh, because his reach was, was so great. And nobody else really had the nerve to uh, you know, creep up to Spanish encampments and steal the gold out from under the noses of the sleeping uh, Spanish soldiers. So uh, that really distinguished Drake. That took a lot of guts, but he was also very cautious in the way he did it. He spent very little time on shore. Um, he did not put his men's lives unnecessarily at risk. So, you know, he, he had very few casualties, unlike Magellan, who got practically everybody on his voyage killed 60 years earlier. Um, and... Uh, you know, he, he had a uh, kind of a single-minded vision. The downside was that he was, he passed up a lot of opportunities to explore the world that he was going around, uh, unlike Magellan. So we don't really have that much scientific data or geographical data about places he went or forces he observed. We, we gathered some, and some of the chroniclers who went along with Drake wrote about it, but... Um, he had a rather, uh, he was focused, let's put it that way. Yeah. I was going to well, say simple-minded, but focused approach to what well, he was doing. Well, what was the point? This was a hush-hush voyage. Uh, Queen Elizabeth yes. didn't say anything. He didn't tell people where he was going. Right. This was right. under, they didn't have radar back then, but it was under the radar. Nope. And uh, it, was this another gold venture to go pirate gold, or was there some other aim? No, just gold. He brought back some gems as well. But what he really needed and what he wanted was gold. So he loaded up his ships, especially his flagship, Golden Hind, uh, with gold. And that's what he brought back. Um, eventually, while well, skipping ahead, when he did finish the voyage, um, England, uh, Elizabeth and the powers that be in England were thrilled, but they kept it, kept it a secret. And they locked up his ship and the gold in the Tower of London for a long time. And if anybody asked whatever happened to Drake and what did he bring back, they said, well, he came back, but, you know, no big deal. No, he didn't bring back anything interesting. So this was and not about was... exploration, and it wasn't about bragging rights to be the first person to make this happen. That happened uh, as a byproduct. Okay. Um, in fact, he did go some places that Magellan didn't go. He much went much further north. You were talking about um, his adventures in the uh, Pacific Northwest. He spent a lot of time with uh, the Miwok people, whom uh, he got along with quite well. This was interesting. They had not been attacked and traumatized by the Spanish. When Drake came in, and it's hard to know what they were thinking, um, it seems as if they regarded him as a fulfillment of some sort of prophecy. So they treated him and his men very well, and they wanted them to stay and become their rulers or co-rulers. Uh, Drake gave it some thought um, because he could be you know, very powerful there, but he decided he wanted to go back to England, which is eventually what he did. Uh, but this actually raises an interesting point when you're a historian writing about this era. We know what Drake and, his, and Elizabeth and uh, the English were thinking um, and to a certain extent what they were feeling because they left records. We don't really know uh, what the people were thinking whom they encountered. Um, the Miwok uh, tribe, uh, other tribes, you know, we, we can try and uh, infer from their behavior what they were doing, if they were fleeing or attacking or being cordial, but we don't really know the nuances because they were pre-literate. So, in a sense, if you're a historian writing about this era, one hand is tied behind your back, and, um, you know, you're trying to fill in blanks based on observed behavior. Right. But you also have to fill in some blanks about motives in Drake's heart. You can say that he's just going for the gold, which has nothing to do with the <laughs> Olympic movement. But you right. but you could you you can't really say that he was like appreciably 
more advanced in his ethics than the Spaniards were in the way indigenous no, people no. were being treated, can you? You can say he was less cruel. You know, he, he didn't go around slaughtering people. Um, he's, you know, he said explicitly he was trying to, the way he put it was, get revenge for the indignities he had suffered at the hands of Spain um, as a young, uh, you know, uh, would-be pirate uh, and marauder with John Hawkins. Uh, there was, of course, also a tremendous enmity between England and Spain. So he was trying to um, put forward or, you know, save the national honor, uh, you know, regarding Spain, which was a much larger uh, and richer kingdom. Uh, uh, beyond that, it's it, it's really hard to know. It's hard to speculate. We, we have some idea of what Drake's... Um, motivations and inner life uh, were, but, you know, he was complicated. For example, he was quite religious. Um, and uh, after his father stopped being a farmer in later life, he became a clergyman. Um, Drake held regular reg- religious services on his ships, and he insisted that everybody uh, participate uh, all the time. His uh, main uh, chronicler um, uh, was also a clergyman. Uh, so, you know, Drake's Belief in uh, uh, a higher power um, and a God who was looking out for him, who was on his side, was was very strong. So, if you would ask Drake if he was a religious, God-fearing person, he would say, "Oh, absolutely." You know, there's a disconnect here. I am a God-fearing person, but I sure like to rob people of their gold. Yeah, well, <laughs> those were the days. <laughs> those were the You're days. Right. You're right. There is a disconnect. As, as, it, as it looks to us. Yeah, as it looks to us. But he's yeah, serving I mean, his we, queen. When, and you, his... When, when you write about exploring, it's interesting. We see things from our perspective. However, you know, it's, it's, as you move around the globe, you, you know, and you start looking at things from a shifting perspective, and if you see things through different people's eyes, they look differently. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it gets more and more nuanced and complicated, uh, uh, good and evil get mixed up together in all sorts of unexpected, complicated ways. This really happened with Magellan, uh, particularly, who was uh, single-minded to the point of folly. And um, so, you know, when, when you go exploring, that is, among other things, a test of one's beliefs and uh, one's worldview. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, we're going to take a quick break here, and then I want to hear about this mutiny, this and the execution of of this fellow Thomas Doty. I think is his name. We'll come uh, right yes. back to that in just a moment here. Okay. We have with us Lawrence Burgreen. He is author of In Search of a Kingdom: Francis Drake, Elizabeth the First, and the Perilous Birth of the British Empire. Stay tuned to Constant Wonder. Thanks for listening to Constant Wonder. I'm Marcus Smith. It's great pleasure to have with us best-selling author Lawrence Burgreen with us. He's written about Magellan and Columbus. He's written about Marco Polo. His latest book is about Francis Drake and Elizabeth I. I'll give you the full title. In Search of a Kingdom, Francis Drake, Elizabeth I, and the Perilous Birth of the British Empire. He executes a guy along the way, this religious fellow does, for mutiny, apparently? <laughs> yes. Um, it was a, his name was uh, Thomas Doughty. He was a rival of Drake's. He came from a much higher social order and looked down on Drake and probably thought that he was one of the people running this particular expedition, uh, not uh, this low-born Francis Drake. Uh, Drake, like many English people at that time, uh, had a strong belief in the supernatural and especially in witches. Um, you know, there's witches, witches are mentioned throughout Shakespeare. Um, who comes along about this time or a little bit later. And men could be witches as well as women. Um, Drake decided that Thomas Doughty was a witch and was going to put some sort of evil spell on the voyage, and that would lead to a catastrophe. This was, and so the, the rivalry between them uh, took on this extra dimension. Um, he, uh, it's pretty carefully described, uh, assembled a uh, court, to try him. Um, now they were at this point in Patagonia, so they were along the southernmost part of the uh, east coast of South America. Oddly enough, this happened very near a spot where the same thing occurred with Magellan about 60 years earlier, where there had been a mutiny, and uh, Drake had sentenced 
uh, to execution the mutineer. And they even saw the gallows where this earlier event had occurred. No way. Way. (laughs) (laughs) Couldn't make this up. Yeah. You know, why it happened to occur in the same spot, I don't really know. But we do know it it did occur because it was well documented. And what was interesting was that before, and I think this is in some ways typically English, uh, just before the um, execution, they sat down to break bread, Drake and Dowdy. And they had a very cordial, civilized meal. And Drake commended uh, or wished uh, Dowdy Godspeed on his journey into the new world. The next now, world. now that's the kind of neighbor you want. <laughs> so, um, and and this was again well documented. And then Dowdy was beheaded, and the the crew sailed on. <clears throat> um, it was widely expected that when Drake returned to England, um, he would face consequences. He would be jailed, uh, tried, uh, jailed, perhaps even executed himself for having done this. However, by the time he did get back, and it was oh, about two and a half years after that, um, Elizabeth was so excited about all the gold uh, that Drake had brought back, brought back that she didn't really bother uh, with it. She was said she had a sort of amoral streak himself, even though Dowdy's brother who was back in England, kept complaining that, you know, Drake had murdered um, his, you know, Thomas Doughty and should be held accountable, but he managed to get off scot-free. Yeah, brutal times, very strange yes. times. So. so, okay, let's wrap up this world voyage. He gets back, you say, two and a half years, my goodness. And, yeah, uh, three years altogether. And uh, he gets back, it's kept, the ship is comes up the Thames, the Tower of London, they they don't say what's happened to the gold. They don't talk much about it. Queen Elizabeth is overjoyed. Is she he going to? Is he going to be one of her favorites from that point on? Yes, he he becomes a favorite. She elevates him to a knighthood. Um, there's a famous scene that's uh, kind of iconic in English history where she uh, comes onto the deck of his ship, Golden Hind, taps him on the shoulder with a sword, and uh, you know dubs him Sir Francis Drake. Except it didn't very happen quite that way. She was still afraid of Spain, and she thought that if she did this, that um, the King of Spain, King Philip, uh, this would provoke an invasion of England. So at the last second, she stepped aside, and she gave the sword to the French ambassador who was there. And she said, here, monsieur, you do it. So the French ambassador um, did the honors instead, and that way Elizabeth could give herself an out. Um, she, was, she was always kind of on two sides of every question. Anyway, Drake got uh, uh, his knighthood. He got a very a enormous castle called Buckland Abbey, which had been a Cistercian monastery. Um, his first wife, as it happened to him, he'd been married for many years, died shortly thereafter, and he married a wealthy woman uh, as, as his second wife, and they moved into this giant castle, which is now part of the National Trust, and you can visit it uh, in England. Um, but he... he and he became mayor of Plymouth. Um, he was a member of Parliament. Um, he had various other uh, honorable titles and responsibilities. And it was thought that he would settle down and, you know, as a very wealthy English person, uh, live out his life because he was still in his 40s. But he didn't. He got restless. And not long after getting married, I think less than a year, he was back at sea. Well, he didn't just get restless. Somehow he got a vice admiralty C, whatever they call those things, right? He, he gets an appointment. Yes. Yeah, he got, he got an appointment, but he, didn't, he, he could have stayed uh, on dry land for the rest of his life. But he wanted to get back on sea, so he got back to fighting the Spanish. Um, and he said he was happier at sea than he was on land. Well, this went on for several years, and then, uh, but the enmity between England and Spain was not resolved. Finally, 1588, this is eight years after Drake returned from his circumnavigation, uh, Philip launched a long-expected major invasion of England, and we call this the Battle of the Spanish Armada. Uh, the Spanish fleet was far more sophisticated than Spain's. Uh, this was a much wealthier country. Well, the Spanish um, fleet was they, more sophisticated than England's. Yes, thank you. And uh, they had, you know, very fancy uniforms, fancy ships. Everything was very decorated. Um, but they weren't that seaworthy, and they weren't that good 
at uh, this kind of guerrilla warfare. Um, Spain, England, had barely had any kind of a navy. Um, it was a, basically a pickup navy of private ships. Um, they were smaller. Uh, they were so-called race-built. That does not mean racing. It means that they were raised like they were low-slung, and they were much more maneuverable. So in tight quarters, um, they were able to sail rings around Spain, which is what happened. Uh, they were able to sink many uh, Spanish ships um, and uh, th- you know, g- gain an advantage. Um, they were also helped by a famous storm that happened to come up at that time. And it's possible the outcome of this battle and history might have been different without the storm. And this went on for a long time. As it happened, this was an era of what we call the LCO, the Little Climactic Optimum, which meant there were terrible storms um, for this period in history, uh, much more violent than we see now. And one of these storms struck in the middle of the battle. So um, as Spanish ships were trying to flee and get back to Spain, uh, many of them sunk. Um, they couldn't get directly back to Spain. They had to sail north along the coast of Scotland and Ireland, all the way around, and then finally south and getting back to Spain. But many of them didn't make it. Many Spanish sailors were washed up on the shores of Scotland and Ireland. Some were treated well. Some were chopped to pieces by the English, um, depending. And uh, they, uh, so for, for Spain, it was a disaster. Curiously enough, the survivors, the Spanish survivors, when they got back, were well treated uh, by King Philip of Spain. Yeah. Elizabeth yeah. let the English victors starve or die of disease aboard their ships because huh. she was so stingy. She didn't want to spend the money on trying to rescue them or replace them. So uh, this is just one victors one of those rare times there. you want to be on the losing team, right? Yeah, right, right. So I said, you know, Elizabeth could be very, very uh, callous. So she let many of them, she and her ministers made a, a calculation that it would be cheaper to let these sailors starve rather than uh, try and revive them or pay off their pensions or anything like that. So uh, many of the uh, English sailors, even though they were victors, uh, needlessly died. Nevertheless, England claimed an important victory, and the balance of power between these two nations, a David and Goliath situation shifted. And from then on, England was, uh, you know, a, a rising dominant force. I don't know if we have time for me to go into the uh, 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 John Dee, who was an architect of the notion of the British Empire, who came along at just this point and gave Elizabeth a kind of mystical, theoretical framework um, for an England with a power beyond just an iron I, uh, uh, island nation. Until this time, no one referred to England as uh, uh, Great Britain. They just called it England. It was an island, island nation. Um, John Dee projected the idea out of a British empire where, that with England at the center. As he saw it, England could be at the center of world affairs. And this sort of mystical notion inspired Elizabeth and those around her and uh, eventually led to what we call the creation of the British Empire. Now, at that time, you've heard the expression, the sun never sets on the British Empire. But at that time, the expression was, the sun never sets on the Spanish Empire. So eventually it shifted over. So uh, how much credit are we supposed to give Sir Francis Drake in the fortunes of this budding new empire Or was it all the storm that took out the Armada? I mean, did he try to take credit for some of this? Yes. I mean, you know, it's when when you write history, see how much of it is coincidence, uh, is is luck. You know, people happen to be there. Uh, You have to show up in order to be lucky. But uh, Drake was very lucky. But but beyond that, he also was able to stuff the national coffers with gold. And that must have been something for the economy. That was, he did have that one central fact in mind, and that helped him and helped uh, England. Uh, but he was so much a pirate, even in the middle of the Spanish Armada, which he was participating in, and he was very wealthy by that point. Uh, he took time out to keep some of the gold that they were stealing from Spain for himself. Yeah, I'm sure he um, did. <laughs> he, he didn't need it, 
but he, he couldn't resist it. It was this pirate's feral instinct that he had. Well, maybe we should actually correct ourselves. I don't know that the gold did anything for the economy. It really did something to bolster the power of the throne, and to the extent that the power of the throne then meant maybe some security against invading hostile foreign powers, maybe that's the good it did. But yeah, I think that's a good point. Yes, that's well taken. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it did not trickle down to, quote, the people. Yeah. And the same in Spain. They, they spent their, they, they used gold to finance foreign wars, not to help. The people were starving in Spain while they were fighting very expensive, wasteful foreign wars. Yeah. Well, take us to the demise of Francis Drake. This is quite the story where he's out at sea again. Um, he he went out to sea again, no reason to. He certainly had won every honor and had all the money he could possibly need, plus he had this beautiful castle. And uh, he kept fighting war battles because he couldn't resist it. You know, it's like a dog who can't stop chasing cars. Um, and uh, <laughs> Except out, more out, brutal. But more brutal. But eventually he met the same death that so many sailors of that era did when he was aboard ship, and this was off the coast of Venezuela. He got dysentery, uh, which was an agonizing disease, and there was no cure for it. There was no, no medicine that, that could take care of it, and that's what he died from, uh, was uh, dysentery in the middle of uh, various conflicts with Spain. I think he was hoping to uh, invade Cuba at that point and uh, clear Spain out of there, but he, he never got to that point. And he was buried at sea. He was buried in a, in a metal coffin at sea. No one knows exactly uh, where that coffin is. And uh, so until, um, well, he was the, the greatest British naval her- hero at that, until that time, and maybe until the 18th century, and uh, when they were other important ones. But, you know, Drake is considered the first really important naval hero. Now, he had a lot of rivals, and it took a while for his reputation to emerge uh, posthumously. Um, there was a uh, historian named John Hacklett who wrote a multi-volume history of uh, sea voyages of that time. And in the first edition of it, uh, Drake was omitted uh, because huh. his rivals told Hacklett to keep it out. And... Uh, um, these these were lesser na- lesser navigators like Sir Walter Raleigh and others. Uh, some we've heard of, some we haven't. Well, tell me this: uh, is yeah. is he lionized beyond what he should be? Well, I would say that there's in in England there is a kind of a Drake. Um, he's a folk hero, uh, which softens the edges and uh, portrays him as a heroic figure. Um, Why would the and, folk uh, latch on to him as a figure of importance? Well, because he um, helped pull England out of poverty and obscurity at that point. You know, England looked like it was going down for the count uh, when he came along. Uh, you know, this was after Henry VIII. Henry VIII um, left the country in a dire state. Uh, so when Elizabeth uh, came along, uh, you know, by almost by accident, she was out of the line of succession. It's a long story, but... Uh, she became queen almost by accident. Um, you know, this uh, be, sparked a revival in England's fortunes, and, and, and Drake played an important part of it. You know, I only have one last thing to say to you, which is you can't want this guy as your neighbor. You just can't. <laughs> um, you know, I understand what you're saying. It's funny. I often think about people I'd want to just have dinner with, not necessarily yeah. <laughs> live next to. And I would definitely want to have dinner with Drake. Uh, I don't know about uh, uh, a neighbor, and, but Ferdinand Magellan, I would not want to bother having dinner with him. Oh, and, that's a very no important distinction. whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, you have a meal with a guy like that, he might execute you by the time it's over. <laughs> <laughs> Well, such a pleasure to learn from you today, and thank you for the book Thanks and for, for, your, for your time. Pleasure to meet you. You too. You too. Thank you very much. Lawrence Burgreen with us. His latest book is titled In Search of a Kingdom, Francis Drake, Elizabeth I, and the Perilous Birth of the British Empire. English piracy started almost by accident as adventurers from England jostled with the Spanish Empire, and Queen Elizabeth smiled, apparently. But if we fast forward a hundred years, we find that piracy takes on a very different flavor, and the English colonists and the government back in London, they no longer find it so amusing. We're going to find out why when we come back to Constant Wonder in just a moment. 
You're listening to Constant Wonder. I'm Marcus Smith. Francis Drake was one of the earliest of English pirates, also a hero of the English people and the English crown. But over the next century, pirates began to lose their charm. And that might have had something to do with their choice of targets and shifting geopolitics. To learn a bit more, I spoke with Eric J. Dolan, who's author of Black Flags, Blue Waters, also of Leviathan, the History of Whaling in America. Eric Dolan starts here with a quick note about how you construct a history of pirates who were largely illiterate and didn't keep memoirs. How reliable are the other accounts from that era? One of the most famous books on pirates ever written came out in 1724, The General History of Pirates. And while there's a lot of really great information on there that was pulled from documents of the day and interviews of the day, a lot of it was embellished, I think, frankly, to sell more copies of the book. There were a lot of lascivious and sort of outlandish tales that were bandied about that have made their way down to us in the ensuing centuries, but there were also a lot of good information. I just want to say the one source of information that was absolutely amazing is I went over to the National Archives of Britain, and they have digitized every single letter that was sent from the American colonies back to the homeland, the mother country, and vice versa. So if you wanted to learn something about Blackbeard, you get on the computer, you type in the word Blackbeard, and all of a sudden you have 30 or 35 letters written in the early 1700s, all of which are documenting different aspects of Blackbeard's exploits. So even though they didn't leave memoirs behind, there is a lot of information. And as a writer, what you have to avoid, I believe, most of all, is being overwhelmed by the information, not by having too little information to work with. Or maybe even getting a bias of the times that's already being romanticized by contemporaries of Blackbeard? Yes, absolutely. Blackbeard is the perfect example. One of the myths that comes down to us through time about Blackbeard that started with that book, General History of Pirates, there's an engraving in that book that shows Blackbeard, and he has his hair coming out from under his hat. And at the end of his hair, on both sides of his head, there are matches that are lit on fire. And if you read the text, it tells you that Blackbeard, who is already a fearsome apparition coming at you, not an apparition, a real pirate, but it tells you that Blackbeard used to go into battle with those matches lit so that his face would be robed in smoke to make him more fearsome than he otherwise would have been. But just think about it for a minute, how ridiculous it would be to go into battle with flames shooting out from under your hat. And all of the people that were attacked by Blackbeard, not a single one of them told anybody at the time about this strange uh, attacking behavior. So that's just one of the myths that comes down to us about Blackbeard. Another one is that he had 14 wives. Well, we have no evidence that he had any wife at all. So there's a lot of stuff that you have to take with more than a grain of salt. And the best way to figure out what's good information and what's not is by triangulation, basically getting as many different sources telling you the same thing. And uh, you can pretty much figure out what is true and what is embellished. Now, let's get into the, the figure Blackbeard. I know that part of your book, uh, the, the aim of part of your book is to, to put some flesh and blood on these. Well, you know, they lost their flesh and blood by hanging or execution so many times, but you're putting them back on them. Uh, what was he like? Do you know? Well, my answer is not going to be totally satisfactory because despite the fact that Blackbeard is clearly, along with Captain Kidd, the most famous pirate that people will have heard about, his time on history's stage is incredibly brief. He was only uh, known to the world as a pirate for about a year and a half. And although he was able to gather together around 400 men under his command and five different ships. And he did some very exciting or dramatic things like blockading Charleston Harbor for the better part of a week. He wasn't even close to being the most successful of pirates. At the end, he didn't have a huge treasure or hoard when he was finally captured and killed. And uh, it's, it's just amazing how the legend of Blackbeard so far outstrips the reality of the man. Another thing that people say is that he was this fearsome, violent 
person. Well, we can look through the history, and a lot of the ships that were captured, when they were let go and they went into port, they would talk about their experience. And we only have one instance where Blackbeard actually physically accosted one of his victims, whipping him. The reality, as I say, is much less exciting than the legend that's grown up around him. And the funny thing is, if Blackbeard could come back and see what's happened to his reputation, he would probably love it. <laughs> well, what, what accounts for the overblown reputation? A, a lot of it, I, I believe, is his name. He was called Blackbeard at the time, and the one description we have of him, which was given in a deposition by one of the people that was captured on a ship, said that he was tall, skinny, and he had a long black beard. From that, it sort of developed, and really what gave him his legs is that book again from 1724, The General History of Pirates. It has a very large section about Blackbeard, and it talks about him being this larger-than-life character who, uh, as I said, had 14 wives and uh, shot one of his uh, underlings just because he wanted to, every once in a while, he needed to show who was boss, and he was very vicious, and he captured all these ships. Well, he did capture quite a few ships. But a lot of what was in that book was not real, and I believe the combination of the legend plus the fantastic branding that he had with that name Blackbeard helped cement him in the minds of people forever after. Well, if his career was short, he was maybe a flaming comet that just uh, went out yes. really quickly. Is that, is that common for pirates to just sizzle out real quick? Yes, a lot. <laughs> Unfortunately, a lot of when you read the accounts, uh, what you see is that a lot of pirates ended up on the gallows uh, during the in the 17 teens. There were close to 400 pirates that were hanged after being captured, and they. It's a tough life to begin with. They were not welcome at any ports, at least in the 1700s. In the late 1600s, they were, but that's a different story. So they weren't welcomed at ports. They could only go down to Nassau and the Bahamas as their refuge. And they uh, were doing something that was inherently dangerous. Every once in a while, they had to attack a ship that they wanted to take over, and people would sometimes fight back. And then there were the military ships that were looking for them, the British Navy. So... It's not, a very, it's not a job with a great amount of job security. So a lot of these pirates only lasted for a few years. And what you also find is even with pirates, pirate ships that maybe captured 10, 15, 20 other vessels during their career, they very rarely found a ship that had on board a huge amount of treasure. There were a few instances of that that I talk about in the book. But for the most part, they would overhaul merchant ships, and on board might be a bunch of lumber, uh, pipes of wine and brandy, which, or rum, which the pirates greatly appreciated, but not much in the way of cold, hard cash. So when you read what these pirates plundered, you're often left with the feeling of, boy, they didn't get very much for their efforts. So maybe part of it was just loving the lifestyle and being outcasts from more traditional society. But they also had to have a market for that lumber. If they found poles or something, they had to go yes. into port somewhere and sell it. Yes, it was very, and it was very hard to do that in the 1700s. In the late 1600s, one of the most fascinating things I found in, in researching this book is these Red Sea pirates. In the late 1600s, there were many, many pirate ships that left from colonial shores, went around the Cape of Good Hope into the Indian Ocean, and attacked Mughal or Muslim shipping that was transiting between India and the Red Sea ports of Jeddah and Mocha. And these pirates were the most successful of all pirates. They would overhaul ships, sometimes a ship that had more than a thousand pilgrims going on the annual Hajj, loaded with cash and jewels. And these pirates would get away with a huge haul where each pirate may end up getting his cut 1,500 pieces of eight, which back then was an enormous amount of money. And then they'd go back to the colonies, and they were the fathers, sons, and brothers of the colonists. So even though they did a lot of despicable things in the Indian Ocean, they were welcomed with open arms by the colonies because they were bringing back the very things that the colonists wanted most of all, because the colonies were starved of currency, so here they were bringing back currency. They were bringing back silk. They were bringing back jewels. 
And they were, as I said, the most successful of all pirates. And many of them not only were successful, but they were able to retire and weave themselves back into the communities from which they came and lead the rest of their life in relative anonymity. You have just touched upon a very important point in your book, which has to do with the colonies, the American colonists, uh, being kind of cozy with pirates. Absolutely. It, it, it is the, most fa- the single most fascinating thing that I discovered in researching this book. And bear in mind, before I worked in this book, like all of my books, I've written 14 books. I always pick a topic I don't know a lot about beforehand because I want to remain excited about it while I'm working on the book. And when I started reading about these pirates coming out of Massachusetts and New York and Rhode Island, going into the Indian Ocean, uh, attacking these ships, coming back with riches, and then not only being welcomed into the community, but there were kickbacks going to local governors who were giving out fake privateering licenses so these pirates could go into the Indian Ocean. There were merchants who were investing in these pirate voyages as if it was a regular legal activity, and they were getting dividends when those pirates came back loaded with treasure. So it is this fascinating economy that arises in the American colonies before 1700 that hinges on the success of out-and-out piracy. But it changes very much. And after 1700, there is a major crackdown, and that's the time when pirates no longer are welcome in the colonies, but they become persona non grata because instead of going to the Indian Ocean and attacking these quote-unquote heathens or Muslims halfway around the world, which the colonists didn't care very much about, now in the 17-teens, in the 1720s, Blackbeard and the other pirates, they're attacking British and colonial shipping along the coast of the colonies. So they're affecting the colony's bottom line. They're no longer bringing money in. They're taking money out. You've got to see where the money is going and whose ox is being gored. And when the colonists were benefiting, they loved pirates. But when the colonists were losing money to pirates, they hated them and they fought back with a vengeance. Eric J. Dolan, author of Black Flags, Blue Waters. So by the year 1700, pirates along the American coasts and in the Caribbean were endangered. Before long, they were extinct. Few mourned their loss until Disney Pictures and Johnny Depp came along. Remember that you can enjoy our constant wonder conversations quite conveniently on demand or as a podcast. The place to learn more about us is byuradio.org. I'm Marcus Smith. Constant Wonder is a production of BYU Radio.